You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, Canada. Happy, I guess it's Wednesday today. Happy Wednesday, midweek. Lots on the big show today. I hope everyone's good. I'm here with Sam is in the house, which is fantastic. Chris Viss is back behind the board. Thanks to Elsie for uh, sitting in for Chris yesterday. And then we got Nick on the board in T.O. So the team is, uh, news team has assembled, as they say. Now, the reason why I am slightly, you might notice a, a pause in my voice right now, because as we are on air right now, Something kind of remarkable is happening because usually I have my opening essay. I have the theme of the day and the theme of the day, by the way, in case you're wondering, which kind of fits with the news I'm about to tell you about. The theme of the day is turning blue, turning blue. And what I mean by that is, is conservatives are, is the conservative movement turning a different shade of blue. And I say that because the war room's here. Pierre Polyev has taken over the Conservative Party. And we'll discuss that. How is he going to change the party? What is happening to the conservative movement in general, globally? All movements change, and conservatism is changing right now. And there's a struggle to see what will emerge. And it's not because the movement is in trouble. It's because all political parties are having trouble trying to connect with what people want and convincing people that what they do is authentic, is trustworthy, is transparent, and most importantly, is effective. Governments need to be effective so people can actually believe in something. And as I say, selling people grievances is a short-term high. It's a nice hit, gets you a buzz, and you got to keep selling it. I mean, there's there's an element, there's an addiction element to it. you got to take... Another hit and another hit. And after a while, you get a nerd and the grievances have to go up and up and up and up. And of course, that's why you end up in selling conspiracy theories anytime you're into grievance politics, because people just get a nerd. Well, that's not enough. That's not. I don't trust lawyers. I don't trust doctors. I don't trust media. I don't trust governments. Oh, don't trust them. There's a conspiracy. Oh, you know, behind that pizza part of their pedophiles. Oh, they're not just pedophiles. Oh, it's the deep state. Oh, it's no, it's George Soros. Oh, no, it's. Bill Gates, oh, it's the World Economic Forum, and here we go, and on and on you go, and everything's another grievance and another conspiracy theory, and it's a hit, and it's a hit, and it's a hit. you got to up the dosage, and we're spiraling, spiraling out of control. Against that, both parties on the center, the left and the right, are trying to figure out what their role is, because it's hard to resist the high that grievance politics gives people, the energy it gives people. It's an addiction. And it's an epidemic just like any other drug. And it gets worse and worse, and the drugs get harder, and the impacts are worse. So I truly believe we have a grievance addiction. And that has led us down a lot of rabbit holes. But that doesn't mean that mainstream parties are down those rabbit holes. They may be weaponizing them, flirting them, playing footsies with them, or rejecting them. Pierre Polyev has played footsies with them, for sure. But he's also very centrist on other issues. He's been very centrist on social conservative issues, like pro-choice. 
He's been very central on immigration issues. He's not hot-wiring his movement to some kind of anti-immigrant movement, the farthest thing from it. That's good news. So he's a different... So we're trying to figure out what kind of conservatism he is running. But the other guy that's really important to pay attention to is a guy named Eric Duhem. He's running for the Conservative Party in Quebec. Now, that party's like dormant if you live in Quebec. Like they, they were nothing. They didn't even exist a couple of years ago. But after the pandemic and during the pandemic, Duhem kind of uh, emerged. He's a shock jock. He's a well-known radio host. And he kind of emerges from the noise because he's very, 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 very anti-vaccine mandate. Actually, the guy, strangely enough, is double-dosed himself, but he doesn't like vaccine mandates. And remember, Quebec had the harshest vaccine mandates. Remember, they had a curfew. And suddenly he brought the conservative movement off the mat. Now, the, look, we know now, Ben, we broke it on Power Play yesterday and the Globe broke it as well, that we know the federal government is finally, and by the way, at long last, by the end of the month, planning to get rid of vaccine mandates at the border, thankfully. It's, it's time. Get rid of random testing. It's time. And get rid of the ridiculous Arrive Can app, which has been such a nightmare for border crossing. So that's good. So you got to represent something else. When those things are gone, you got to have a new thing. So today on The Big Show, we are going to talk to Mr. Duham, not just because there's a Quebec election in under two weeks. That's, that's consequential. But because it might be emblematic of what is what does a new kind of conservatism look like. And I think with Mr. Polyev and Mr. Duham, we've got two really interesting. And then let's throw in Doug Ford and Premier Legault who have both pioneered another kind of conservatism. Some are centrist, some are not. They clearly have different views on on mandates. Ford and Legault look like they're going to romp the massive majorities. So we're going to deal with that. And I really want you to listen, even if you're not caring about Quebec politics, because, you know, look, we have a a huge listenership in Montreal on CJAD, shout out, and, and I'll be in Montreal later tonight as part of a, a Bell Media. We're supporting something called Bal de Lumière, something for mental health. And I'm delighted to be part of that. But if you're in Ontario or British Columbia or Alberta or wherever you're listening to us, Newfoundland, Labrador, it doesn't matter. We're talking about a movement and what's happening in Quebec is emblematic of a movement. So we'll deal with that. We will go live to Ukraine as well. Because Putin's desperate. And he's dangerous. And Putin has just said he wants to have a uh, mobilization, more troops. They say 300,000 more troops. And he says, oh, we can mobilize 25 million. And he's also threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons. Tactical nuclear weapons. This guy's a danger. So we're going to go on the ground with a member of parliament from Ukraine. How are they dealing with this as they're pushing Russian forces back? So we'll do that. So I'm look. I'm preparing all this stuff, right? And then all of a sudden, right now, as we're speaking, and here's where I'll get to the... Chris, you might as well throw the breaking news thing in because it's still breaking right now. The New York Attorney General, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, has just and is still speaking right now, is suing Donald Trump 
and her and his children for fraud. I'm going to play you a clip. She's just announced a civil fraud charge against Donald Trump, Donald Jr., Eric, and Ivanka. Listen. I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. Now, remember, this has been a three-year-long investigation. They interviewed 65 witnesses. Remember, both Donald Trump and his son Eric were, in, were interv- uh, interviewed, and they both took the fifth, like, 500 times. 500 times they said, yeah, we're going to take the fifth. To 500 questions, they invoked the Fifth Amendment in 2020, right? But now, looks like the chickens are coming home to roost. Let me just play you one more, because I'm going to pick this up. This is breaking right now that she's taking questions, but here's what they said about this lawsuit. Here's Letitia James again. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system thereby cheating all of us. So this is breaking news right now. Donald Trump is being sued by the Attorney General of New York. Now, this has been a long-time feud. So what I'm going to do now, because, look, this does not happen every day. A former president gets sued. These are big charges. You probably want to put this into perspective just so you understand them. So Renato Mariotto, a former U.S. federal prosecutor in the United States Attorney's Office, is joining us next to tell you exactly what this means. Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We have breaking news out in New York right now. The New York Attorney General Letitia James just announced a civil fraud charges against Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, and Ivanka Trump, saying this just minutes ago. I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. This is a part of a three-year-long investigation by our office. They interviewed 65 people. By the way, Donald Trump and Eric Trump were interviewed. They took the fifth over 500 times. This was really triggered after some members of the Trump inner circle, like his former lawyer, um, basically turn state's witness. Here's what Letitia James says about today's civil charge. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system, thereby cheating all of us. Finally, Letitia James decided that's it um she is going she said that this is essentially she called this the art of this um let's go to three here she said this she did it with the help of his children and she dubbed this the art of the steel listen claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal it's the art of the steel 
And there cannot be different rules for different people in this country or in this state. All right. So what does this mean? I'm sure like like me, many of you are wondering, what does this mean for the Trump family and for Donald Trump? Renato Mariotti is a former U.S. federal prosecutor in the Securities and Commodities Fraud Section of the United States Attorney's Office. He is joining us now. Renato, thank you, sir, for being here. I really appreciate it. Can you break down for our listeners across Canada what these charges mean? Sure. So, uh, and and I should say, I'm a, I was a prosecutor for many years, but not currently. But I, I will just say that, you know, what this means, this is a civil case, um, but the penalties are very significant under New York law. What it essentially would, you know, if the if the attorney general prevails, uh, it essentially means that. Um, the uh, corporate entities uh, that the Trump organization uh, currently is constituted under in the state of New York would would ultimately um, be dissolved, uh, would be canceled, so they would no longer be able to operate. You know, would not would not be able to operate uh, as those en- you know as, as those entities in New York. An independent monitor would be overseeing compliance with the law. I mean, there are that you know the uh, Donald Trump revocable trust would have its trustees replaced. I mean, a lot lot of you know very significant penalties that would would hamstring Trump and his operations and, and you may be wondering well wait, how how did we get here uh, why is it that um, the the Trump and his family and his organization have found themselves here and you know a big part of that is because you know the former president is facing legal battles on many fronts and um, you know he ultimately took the fifth hundreds of times so did his son the, the head of this company for a period of time uh, took um, took the fifth I think over 500 times and that really gives the attorney general a lot of leverage in the civil case. Speaking to Renato Mariotti, a former U.S. federal prosecutor in the Securities and Commodities uh, Fraud Section of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, Renato, talk, talk about what they're alleging. The, the attorney general is essentially alleging that he inflated the net worth of Mar-a-Lago, of his apartments in New York, to enrich himself and cheat the system— and tell tell us what why he would be doing that. What's the purpose of these? What she calls acts of fraud and misrepresentation. So this is actually a very common uh, form of fraud. Um, essentially, what they're what you would be doing is inflating the value of an asset in order, for example, to get uh, either more favorable loan conditions or a larger loan um, from uh, a, you know an institution, something along those lines. You might be for investors, uh, you know, inflating the value of a of a of a property also can make investors more interested in it. Um, and you know, I think the allegation is is that he did that in a systematic way, and then you know, at other points of time, uh, the former president would you know show a lower, much lower valuation. For example, when he was dealing with tax authorities, right? You don't want the, the from a tax perspective, you don't want your valuations right. to go up, but obviously, uh, in this business perspective, you do. He well, by the way, his former chief financial officer at the Trump Organization, a guy named Weisselberg, pled guilty in August. Uh, to his role, what, what was a 15-year-long tax fraud scheme. Um, and so he, was his testimony against Trump's real estate company uh, critical here? I think, actually, ironically, Michael Cohen uh, actually was a more important witness for this case. Which is the former surprising. lawyer. 
former lawyer, former fixer, former felon, right? A convicted felon, uh, you know, somebody who has his own fraud problems, but nonetheless, I think really led the New York Attorney General down this road. And and one thing I just want to ma- mention, you know, I think for folks at home, we hear that word fraud all the time. You know, really what fraud is, is just lying to people to get their money. And that's really what is at the core of this issue here. If you're lying about the valuation of something, uh, the, the person on the other side of that transaction, you know, be relying on that lie. So they're seeking $250 million in allegedly ill-gotten funds and barring them essentially from ever doing business in New York. Donald Trump has dismissed her, as you know, sir, as basically a vindictive prosecutor, a fishing expedition. I think Donald Trump Jr. has already tweeted out in the last like three minutes, this is a witch hunt. What does that do to this process? Well, look, I think it's fair to say that uh, Ms. James is an elected official. She's a politician. She ran for office, okay? So I think I think it's fair to to treat her differently than I you might treat someone like Robert Mueller, okay, who's an appointed career prosecutor. That said, of course, uh, the former president would attack Robert Mueller and think exactly yeah, that's the same right. Way. That didn't stop him from attacking Mueller either. Exactly right. So I'm trying to be fair to both sides here in terms of that. But I will just say that, you know, the the reality here is, yes, that's a criticism that can be drawn. That the problem for the former president is that at the bottom line here is that she is the attorney general of the state of New York. And at the end of the day, he's got to answer these factual allegations. And I'm not sure, given that there's potential, you know, criminal uh, criminal uh, cases that are afoot in multiple jurisdictions, that it makes a lot of sense for him to fight this out. So, you know, I often advise clients now that I'm in private practice who are facing civil and criminal issues in different jurisdictions, and usually we want to resolve everything. And she, the the attorney general, is in no mood to resolve things because she realizes she has all the cards. Okay, how serious? Like this could go on for a long time. How serious? You know, how serious is this for Donald Trump? It's very serious because you never want to be sideways with a regulator or a key regulator in a state. And they have a lot of leverage over you. I mean, if the attorney general is fighting you, that's that's pretty serious. They've got taxpayer money. They got a lot of resources. And in this case, like I said, because he took the fifth so many times, they have a lot of leverage. And so as a practical matter, um, I would be very concerned and I would be trying to figure out a way to resolve this. I think he's tried to resolve this, as you said, and I think the attorney general's like, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, we're, we're not making, we're not cutting any deals right now because you're in no position to cut deals. I guess is her position. Um, if, she's, if you're holding a royal flush and the other guy's got a two pair, there's really uh, there's yeah. not a lot of incentive for you to get, to to cut some sort of deal for the pot at that point. Oh yeah. my God! Well, listen, I don't know what Donald Trump seems to have parlayed two pairs into a lot of stuff uh, his whole life. So we'll see where this goes. Renato uh, Mariotti, first of all, on short notice, man, jumping in. I really appreciate it. Former U.S. federal prosecutor in the Securities and Commodities Fraud Section of the U.S. State uh, United States Attorney's Office, now in private practice, but spent years as a prosecutor, so you know this stuff well. Thank you, sir. No problem. Appreciate it. Wow. Look, we got to follow that stuff. Didn't you want to have a sense of what it is? I did. Like, I don't want to hear about this at dinner tonight. And someone says, did you hear what happened? Another lawsuit against Trump? It's like, now you know. There's a guy that was in the office. He knows this fraud stuff well. So now we can move on. And you know where we're going to move to next? I think the biggest unreported story, Ukraine. Is Putin threatening a nuclear attack? We go on the ground in Kiev next. 
where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Vladimir Putin is in serious, desperate trouble, and he's trying to cover for it, but it's terrifying. Does he plan to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? It is hard to doubt. After saying that there's big threats there, he's decided to hold a sham series of referenda in the eastern part of Ukraine to pretend that these are Imagine, pretend that the population is voting for the Russians who are losing in the big counteroffensive. And then he said to defend this new Russian territory, this is such a scam. He has now said that our country has various weapons of mass destruction and in some categories more modern ones than those possessed by NATO countries, he said. This is no bluff threatening actively a nuclear response to the fact that they're losing. By the way, he's also mobilizing more troops. That's right. He's calling up more mobilization for what he tries to dismiss as a some kind of, you know, special action. But of course, it's now a losing war for him. But how does you, the the remarkable human beings the soldiers, the men and women on the front lines. I was just I tweeted out a picture yesterday of a 19-year-old young woman from Ukraine who's trying to finish school, but is instead on the front lines. I have a 19-year-old daughter. My daughter would be fighting like so many Ukrainians' daughters right now. Lesia Vasilenko is a Ukrainian MP, and she joins me now from Kiev. Lesia Vasilenko, always good to reconnect with you. Um, What did you make? What is the Ukrainian response to Putin's new mobilization and his threat to use tactical nuclear weapons? Honestly, keep calm and carry on. That's uh, that's the Ukrainian reaction to uh, to the situation now on the ground and to what we've heard Putin in the morning. And uh, we haven't really heard anything new, have we? Uh, the war still continues. Russia remains an aggressor with their uh, uh, imperialistic ambitions. And Ukraine is still stuck fighting this existential war. Uh, we don't have any other choice but to win. If we don't win, we cease to exist. It's very simple. Uh, by the way, as you say that, uh, President uh, Joe Biden is at the United Nations and he literally said this war is Russia's attempt to extinguish the um, existence of Ukraine. What do you make of these threats, though, when he talks about um, potentially using nuclear weapons? He's talked about it before. Uh, Putin and Russia have used every single possible thing as a weapon of war. They've done nuclear threats and nuclear blackmail. They've uh, gone as far as using rape as a weapon of war. We we uncover mass graves in every territory that gets liberated from Russia's occupation. Uh, you know, he's tried to use food as a weapon of war when he was blocking export of Ukrainian grain. And I don't think it's going to be the end of it. The problem is that Russia, most of the time, does not have it in their arsenal to actually deploy any kind of real weapons. And they stop short of uh, implementing their threats. And What about uh, the, the mobilization, only- though? I, I, just so I remind our listeners, I'm, I'm speaking to a Ukrainian MP. She's in Kiev, Alessia Vasilenko. Alessia, what about this notion that now he's going to mobilize more troops, uh, 100 and 
40,000 new troops, 190,000 new troops. That's if he's successful at doing that. And that's if not all Russian men suddenly leave the country. Because uh, looking at the Google searches from Russia, we see that uh, from yesterday, everybody has been frankly searching for flights out of Russia. And today, apparently, there are queues on the borders, there are queues at the airports, and people are simply trying to leave. And it, it, it makes sense. I mean, who's going to get mobilized? Uh, young men with zero fighting experience, with zero in interest in actually fighting a war or is it going to be middle-aged or uh, rather older generation of Russians who maybe some time ago had some some experience in the military but not a lot really and having seen the numbers the statistics coming out from Ukraine on the number of uh, Russian soldiers killed in Ukraine in these 210 days I think you know, the, the likelihood of going off to war in Ukraine and getting killed is rather high. And people in Russia right. understand that. Yeah. The Russians claim, as you know, about 5,300 people have been killed. I know your Ukrainians have uh, Ukrainians have have claimed about almost close to 50,000. Right. Yeah, 10 times the number that Russia has claimed. Uh, well, again, this is an example of Russia's propaganda. This is how I see it. But it could be that uh, the number of uh, killed soldiers claimed by uh, Minister of Defense Shoigu is actually just the number of the bodies that the Russians have bothered to bring back home to their families and to bury in Russia. Because uh, the situation is that Russians usually, they don't care about their killed. They just leave them in Ukraine and leave them for Ukraine to deal with, uh, which is which is really, you know, not the way any country should be dealing with with the soldiers, sure. with the men uh, who are uh, trying to, to, you know, act in their interests, whatever their interests A are. video emerged uh, Leshia Vasilyko, Ukrainian member of parliament, um, of Russians recruiting soldiers, rapists, murderers in prison, saying you've got a couple of minutes to decide, and then if you go fight, you'll commute your sentence. Has What was the reaction in Ukraine to that viral video? These are just essentially death squads being formed. Uh, this is something that was common in Stalinist times during the Soviet era. This is something that uh, Hitler also uh, employed during Nazi Germany. Putin is no different. It's, it's another dictator uh, tactic. Uh, but again, in Ukraine, we, we don't have a choice. Whoever he sends over here, uh, whatever tactics Putin is going to choose to deploy in Ukraine, we're just going to have to find ways to fight them off and to push Russia out from mm. Ukraine. Talk a bit about the counteroffensive. What's the latest on that? What can you tell us? Is Ukraine planning to keep pushing further? Well, of course. I mean, the only way to bring back peace to Ukraine and with that to Europe and a long-standing peace to the world is to uh, for Ukraine to regain all of its territories and to come back to its borders, its 1991 borders. That means deoccupying Crimea. And that means liberating the towns and villages in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, even those that have been occupied since 2014. The only message that will get through to Putin is one where he is pushed back 
once and for all. And there must be guarantees of non-repetition as well. And these guarantees mm. of non-repetition of the war crimes and the aggression come in the form of reparations that Russia and Russians will have to be paying for all the damage and the losses caused to Ukraine. And not just to Ukraine, actually, mind you, but also to all of the countries that stood by Ukraine and have invested in peace and security, that have given weapons, that have given ammunition, that have given humanitarian aid. I mean, that, that's those are costly things. And it shouldn't be uh, Canada or the US or France or the UK uh, nationals paying for it. It should be Russia. Just before I let you go, there is a bit of good news that sounds minor, but it actually turned into something significant. And I don't know if you've seen it. There Apparently a McDonald's reopened up in Kiev, Lesia Vasilenko, which people are pretty happy about. Oh, that, that made big news. I mean, that was all that people talked about. I think even more uh, talk about <laughs> that was happening than about the counteroffensive. And there was a l- large debate because it reopened in Kiev and Kiev is divided into the left bank and the right bank of the Dnipro River. And usually the right bank is considered more posh and nicer. <laughs> and then uh, it and the McDonald's opened on the left bank. And there was this kind of debate, what's happening? Have, uh, have we shifted demographics in Kiev? It was really interesting to watch but in any case you know at the moment we can't go to to uh, the mcdonald's per se we can order online but people are quite excited about that people have been missing their cheeseburgers you know what it's good to see life back to normal god the bravery that you and your fellow countrymen have exhibited is is beyond inspiring lesia vasilenko i love our chats Uh, so frequent a ukrainian member of parliament and keep up the very very powerful fight thank you lesia thank you talk to you soon Talk to you soon. I love that. Like in the midst of a counteroffensive, they're fighting Russia. This guy's threatening nuclear weapons, and guess what? They're, they're, they need their Big Mac. I love human humanity. All right, we got to take a break. Amazing story on the other side. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to The Big Show. The War Room is standing by. We will dig into all sorts of things in terms of what's happening in Canada, Trudeau versus Pauliev, the big showdown coming tomorrow. I will tell you a great story about our super producer, Samantha, and her a special forces chase that she did at the beginning of the show today that you probably heard, but I'll take you behind the scenes on that. We've got great stuff coming up. We've got a case of seven young people suing the government of Ontario. That's right. Like 15 year olds. We're going to talk to them. Like what, what are they suing them? Well, you'll find out. Imagine being 15. We'll talk to the um, leader of the conservative party of Quebec, Eric Duhame. Is there a new conservative Party turning blue, as I said, theme of the day. Um, but in the meantime, a good fishing story. I love to fish. I hope you do too. This is a great fishing story that comes from Newfoundland and Labrador. Nobody knows how to fish like uh, Maritimes, of course, but Newfoundland and Labrador are particularly powerful. But this is a story about a Canadian program, and I should say, Credit to the Globe and Mail. We read this first, Sam and I, in the Globe. I always like to credit. Great going, Globe and Mail. Always find stuff emerging from there. By the way, I should tell you all, you know the Globe and Mail offices are literally next door here. Like through the wall of my studio, I could knock on Bob Fife's office. So 
Sometimes we do read the globe because it's literally our next door neighbor. So they wrote about this Canadian program that brings girls and women to a fishing wharf, and they're doing it in, in Petty Harbor, Newfoundland and Labrador. But now it's being copied 10,000 kilometers away in Japan. And I want to bring on Kimberly Oren, who's the co-founder of Canadian Girls Who Fish. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, Evan. <laughs> I love, Hi, how are you? I love this. Like, my wife basically works on a ship half her life, so she's always in your neck of the woods. Oh she's gosh. on the Polar Princess on Students on Ice. So anytime I could talk about oceans and fish and, and, and getting uh, different diverse groups of people out there, that's great. What is Canadian Girls Who Fish? What is that program? Well, Girls Who Fish is exactly what it sounds like. It's all about getting uh, girls and uh, women, anyone who identifies as a woman, in a boat. Uh, next to the water, out on the water, and uh, fishing, and uh, reconnecting with uh, fishing heritage, and re you know re redefining that space mm. and getting more voices into that that space so that we can um, have better, deeper, richer conversations about fish and fishing and what should happen there. How, how did this happen? Like you must have a story here, Kimberly. I'm just. You don't oh, you, know you don't co-found Canadian Girls Who Fish without having a story. What's your what's your well, connection here? Well, so first off, I mean, you know, Canadian Girls Who Fish was just started out as Girls Who Fish, and then when uh, Yinji Lee and I met, and she uh, decided to start uh, her own program in Japan. Well, then it became Canadian Girls Who Fish because there was you know Girls Who Fish in Japan. But I. Um, I started as a high school science teacher and, you know, noticed that my, my, my students in the classroom were becoming more and more disconnected with the plants and animals that are in their own backyard. And so I was concerned about uh, children's disconnect with nature. And I decided to go back to teach how I fell in love with science and with nature, which was, you know, hanging out at the fishing wharf. So I decided to try to figure out how to start a program to teach kids to fish. So I quit But did teaching. you grow up? Like, did your, did your folks fish? No. Like, were you just like someone who's like, I'm just some weird little kid girl that loves to hang out at the wharf. Like you must've had was. a connection. I was now. just, I was just the, the weird American kid. Um, oh, is that, that would hang right? out at the fishing wharf. And you and just loved it. Like Labrador you love, you, and you would talk to, yeah. to, to the fishermen and women and just like, I just figure it out. Yeah. They would answer my questions and, you know, teach me and they, they'd let me, help and join in the work at the community wharf because every hand was uh, a welcome. Wow. Hand. Yeah, and where, where was, was cool. that? Like what were you doing in Newfoundland Labrador? Well, um, my, my family lived here and, okay. you know, and okay. yeah. And even though my, my parents weren't, um, you know, a fishing family uh, because I, my friends were members of fishing families and I could, I just followed them to the wharf and, you know, and helped do the work so that great. the kids could do. I'm I'm aging myself. I'm a, I'm a little old. I'm I'm pre cod moratorium uh, child. So. Well, that's all right. We know the cod moratorium. So Kimberly, so so girls who fish. What are the barriers girls face? Like, is it is it is it a crazily male dominated thing? So girls just like oh well, you, you hit that. So that was, you know, when you start to develop a program to teach kids to fish, you see that there are, you know, these intersectional barriers. You've probably heard that word about intersectional issues and not just gender equities issues, but, um, but socioeconomic issues and, 
you know, um, all, all of those. And so, you know, when we started Teach Kids to Fish, we saw that in that space of teaching children, there were other issues we wanted to address. So one of the first one was gender equity issues. So then we started, um, you know, the Girls Who Fish program, because I mean, let's face it, you know, when we're out in nature, the guys tend to take over and, you know, they're doing it sometimes out of this sense of chivalry. And uh, here, let me help you with that. You know, I'll, I'll take the fish off the hook or, you know, and, uh, and they mean to help, but what they're doing is denying us um, a learning experience mm. and denying us this really cool, neat way of connecting with nature. And, um, but then beyond that, what we want to do is um, because when women get involved in fish and fishing, they tend to get involved in the, you know, the, as far as professions go, they tend to get involved at the conservation level, at the research level. They're not in the level of making policy or being in the boardroom. And, um, you know, we think that we're concerned about that because women have different life experiences. They come from different places. They tend to talk about community and family versus profit and, you know, um, expanding profit. And, you know, so so women have different concerns. And so we wanted to um, start providing women a way to voice those concerns about what's happening where fish live. It's so great. Now, I only got a minute here, but then now you've got a community in Japan. Like, how did... So, so yeah. tell me why is do they in Japan is it a very similar vibe? Yes, it is. Since it's all about again reconnecting or connecting women with an activity that isn't as available to them, and so the you know the women love it and uh, they're doing things that that they never would have been able to do before. And just as it's a male dominated space, whether it's fishing commercially or recreationally, it's even more so in Japan. And um, and there's a lot of social things that it's helping to address, too, because being out in nature is, you know, it's a therapy. Um, physicians are now writing prescriptions, you know, for 15 minutes in nature. And so getting out on the water also. Oh, is, uh, so, and right? once you once you catch your first ling cod, there's no going back. Once you realize that thing is not gross looking, it's a beauty. Uh, it, yeah. and you're, like and, Kimberly, and, Orrin, I love this program. Yeah, I, I got it. Yeah, getting people out in the water is fantastic. Uh, girls who fish. Now, the Canadian girls who fish, there's one in Japan. Kimberly Oren is the co founder. Hey, just good luck. I hope more people get out in the water and experience this and pass on the beautiful traditions and the communities that are so deeply rooted all across our country, but certainly in your province. Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you, Evan. What a great program. I love that. Hey, uh, the war room's standing by. We're going to talk politics next. Trudeau versus Polyev on the other side of the break. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the big show. It is that time of the week when all politics is distilled into one tiny virtual room we call the War Room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. 
Is it just real life? Is it just fantasy? Are we caught in a landslide? Is there no escape from reality? I do. I see a silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the Zane Velge political campaign strategist and partner? Nor Northweather is here. And oh my God, Thunderbolts, lightning, very, very frightening to me. Tomocare, 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 Magnifico is here. The CTV political analyst and former NDP leader and easy come. Easy go. Will you let him go? Tim Powers, no. We will not let Tim Powers go. The chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Why is Bohemian Rhapsody so in my mind? I don't know. Welcome, everyone. Uh, well, I just popped well, in my do head. Have, I don't do know. Do any of us play the piano? Someone, <laughs> we, need, we should have warned us. We could have gotten the piano interlude going. It we would have been a whole thing. I just, didn't think, I just didn't think it was appropriate given the circumstances, Zane. <laughs> For us, for us, you should have sang We Are the Champions. Never mind the second grade Bohemian Rhapsody. Pick the right Queen song for this group, will you? O overblown or not, Tim, the whole Bohemian Rhapsody thing I'm in Diego. We can should we play should we play the uh, Trudeau rendition? By the way, soon to be released on Billboard. Here's the Trudeau version. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I couldn't resist. All right, all right, all right. I can't, I can't, I can't do it anymore. But, uh, Tim, overblown or or, or or actually inappropriate? Listen, when Tom Mulcair and I were drinking beer on George Street and listening to the Irish <laughs> descendants, I mean, that, that, that was underplayed. I mean, that should have been overplayed. Uh, this, I think this is overplayed. I mean... Look, a Prime Minister uh, certainly knows how to get himself the wrong kind of attention. That aside, his personality aside, were it not Justin Trudeau, nobody would have really gotten that worked up about it all, but it does yeah. fit into the stereotype of the disconnected Trudeau. I'm sure everybody in this group, even Boy Scout Evan Solomon, has on evenings before funerals had a little bit of fun and sang and done some yeah. things. We just didn't get caught on tape doing it. Yeah, Tom. I mean, was it was it just? No, listen. I, I listen. It's probably it's confirmation bias. If you if you don't like Justin Trudeau, this is you know this is always out of touch. If you do like, well, this exactly. is nothing. But but I will say this. Can you just imagine? And as I said, they've taken away my tickle trunk of costumes. I know what I'll do. Karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I'm with Tim on this one. Come on, lighten up a bit. Yeah, sure, you can always say that it was inappropriate because it was the the day before. And so, no, come on. It, it is the Prime Minister of Canada. He is in London for an official event. He did bring some artists with him, including Je Gregory Charles. And can we just once in a while, you know, just stop analyzing everything and just say he was singing at the hotel and yeah. the, it was okay you know just just let it be but by the way what i do note about this thing more than anything else you know is it overblown it's who is in a position now to start the the conversation about something mm -hmm. being overblown i got form letters that like some people are better at this than others so you get the form letter and the person couldn't even name the radio station on which i had just said give them a break and then they would cut and paste my name that obviously came off a list because they leave the little <laughs> mark on the left-hand side. And so you're sort of going, okay, so somebody's organizing this, which is fine. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. part of life. You know, you organize your trolls, but that's what this is. This, but the conservatives didn't used to have that ability and yeah. they now do because Pierre Poiliev has a hundred thousand of them on a very short leash. So this yeah. is going to be fun to watch. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. And Zane, first of all, I love Tom saying, just let it be. So he's using the Beatles. Oh. 
I, I, was, I thought that was very, very clever, Tom. Uh, Beatles yeah, versus Queen thing. Yeah. Uh, Zane, no, but Zane, it is interesting in the kind of um, uh, the fencing war of of social media weaponization. Justin Trudeau mastered it in 2015, and Pierre Polyev's like a fourth Dan black belt at it now, and here he's going to use this. I mean, Tom just said the most 2022 of phrases. It's part of life. You got to organize your trolls. By the way, he yeah. has a T-shirt. Organize your trolls, which is which is a great <laughs> Tom Mulcair T-shirt. Isn't, isn't that just it, though? Right? Isn't isn't this about going back to the base that you have, giving them every opportunity to rile them up, raise a couple of bucks with them, get them loud, get them to volunteer a couple of hours, you know, fueling their hatred for Trudeau? I mean, this is what it's become. So anything and everything now, especially things like this that have a quasi-viral sensation to it are wet clay that you can mold for your base. Exactly. And for Trudeau, I'm not, I mean, there's no notes to add to, to what Tim and Thomas said. I think it's overblown. I think the performance was overrated. I probably need to teach him a few Bollywood numbers, uh, which I will do next time uh, we chat. But I mean, he's still is, got the costumes. The yeah. Yeah. This is the no. era we live in. We, you, no. Everything is now a possible attack. There's no restraint. Exactly. There's exactly. no holding back because guess what? There's no value in holding back because you can fill the pantry with every attack because there's going to be someone that's going to pay a couple of bucks to, to, yeah. to you or give a couple of hours yeah. of their time as a result of it. By the way, did yeah. you just dangle that whole Bollywood thing to him just as a temptation to see if he could resist? <laughs> like, oh, my. Okay. Well, well, let, let, okay, we've had fun with this. But, but let, Trudeau versus Polyev, they're going to finally meet on Thursday. Tim, uh, challenges for Mr. Trudeau as he faces a guy who – uh, has been preparing for this role since he was 25. Um, a, a bit like challenges that the media are encountering right now with uh, with Polyev. David Aiken fell into that, as we talked about last week. Don't play into his hand. Don't show him what he expects. He's going to expect you to be preachy and wokey and any other E that he can come up with uh, as you, uh, you you encounter him there. So, you know, don't don't play into Polyev's hand. But Polyev is going to go after him on everything he went after the Liberals in the House yesterday. So that shouldn't be a surprise. I think the Liberals need a bit of a better answer on what they're going to do for broad spread inflation relief, because you can make the argument, and some of the programs that they brought forward are certainly going to be very helpful, uh, but they first have to get passed into law, and secondly, they're also very limited. So I, I suspect that liberals are going to need to still kind of refine a better economic story that isn't just dental benefits, that isn't just daycare, because that doesn't really talk to the broader nation's pocketbook. Tom, what's your take on uh, the, the, the Donnie? I, I'm expecting it's going to be a really interesting dynamic, Trudeau versus Polygev. Uh Challenges for Trudeau as he faces, I think, the outside of Stephen Harper and Tom Mulcair, the first real challenger he's had since you guys. Yeah, and I think that uh, Trudeau is going to be in for a surprise because Poiliev okay. is a stronger character than they're expecting. And this is proof of it. The fact that we were even discussing Bohemian Rhapsody shows that they've got some chops. They know how to move things forward. Trudeau pulled this move before, by the way, the, because the beginning of the United Nations season always coincides with the beginning of Parliament. He's ducked out before, and he, he didn't even have a major role to play. His staff filled up his, his agenda, of course, because they had to show that he was there for a reason. But it's also Trudeau's way of trash-talking, like before a boxing okay. match, you know? He's, oh, Mr. Oh, Mr. Poitier, you were running for Prime Minister of Canada, and you won. 
Oh, it looks like I'm still Prime Minister of Canada. Look, that's me at the <laughs> Queen's funeral. And that's me at the United Nations General Assembly. And I won't be there for the opening of Parliament. And Christia Freeland will be attending Bill Graham's funeral. So, well, you know, you'll get the B team and maybe I'll get to you on Thursday. So it's it's a game. But where they failed is that Poitiers opened every newscast, English and French. He pulled a Harper. He did his first question in French. Believe me, that got very favorably noticed in La Belle Province. And from there, his question, I mean, you could have torn apart his question, tax increases on January 1st and April 1st, you know, a lot of baloney in that, but it doesn't matter because he got to say it and nobody got to come back on it. So, I mean, you know, score one for Poiliev. He And I think that the people around Trudeau have, had better realize this ain't no Andrew Shear. This ain't right. no, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole. This is a whole new ball game. And they better start adjusting the way they play right. it. Are you you're now quoting Talking Heads? This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no. All right, okay. I just I didn't know Tom Mulcair was going to meaningfully drop pop lyrics throughout the entire war room today. Let's take a break. Everyone can replenish your pop references, and we'll go back to hear what Zane Velji has to say about the Donnybrook between Trudeau and Polyev. Lots more to come on the war room right here on the Big Show. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We are back inside the war room with three young men who uh, seem to get along. Zane Velji, the political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather. Um, a young, uh, I think he's going to go into politics. Uh, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst, former NDP leader, and Tim. I'll Powers. handle his campaign. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. And uh, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data. Let, let's turn to our friend Zane, uh, who is resides in Alberta. Um, what is your read, sir, on the com- the pending uh, confrontation between Trudeau and Polyev as they finally meet in Parliament tomorrow? I think the fact that even this this conversation has been pumping it up and, and in some ways pumping Pierre up in the sense that, you know, this guy is a firebrand. We've seen what he can produce, uh, especially in Parliament. We know how he attacks. We know how pugilistic he is. I would almost put a, a word of caution into the Polyev camp that you don't want to put too many eggs in that basket uh, for two reasons. Number one, you may not get the showdown that you expect. Tom kind of outlined how, how Trudeau is kind of dipping and dodging and even shadow boxing in certain cases by not showing up uh, and having Polyev fight himself. And B, ask yourself truly, if this is your formal introduction, uh, is this one-dimensionally what you want to be known as, as hyper-pugilistic, as, uh, as this brand, or, or do you want to add a bit more diversity, as you perhaps did on that stage when your wife introduced you uh, on the night of your victory to your profile? Because people mm-hmm. might be watching now and you don't want to be defined singularly with this with this sort of parliamentary firebrand style and i I say this knowing that we've got someone that in 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 at least our lifetimes with tom mulcair known as one of the 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 parliamentary firebrands tom i'd almost pose it to you that can only get you so far in certain cases like you need a more broader definition of who you are and this is not like me signaling (laughs) uh, signaling you out personally but there is a word of caution there for pierre as he heads into uh this week 
And Evan, Evan, can well I just add something? I well, mean, you I, can add something if your name is Tom. Okay. Didn't you just say Tom? No, let's go Tom Tim because now I do want to hear the Tim. But I do. But I thought Zane made a good. Just I just want Tom to reflect on that, and then Timmy, will, I'll just whip back to you. Go. I, I actually, it might surprise you, but I agree with everything that Zane just said, uh, and it's true. <laughs> All right, so then that's yeah, enough you, out of you. Then you, let's you, just you, go to Tim. You, ha- you have to. You have to show more. But I also have always believed that what we did in the last months of the Harper regime in the House, beating the stuffing out of them on a daily basis, really helped soften up the target. Now, the guy who benefited, benefited from it was a certain Justin Trudeau, but Zane's completely right. You have to show more stuff than that. Tom, you once said to me many years ago, you said, my biggest fear is he that wields the sword does not wear the crown. And that is sometimes, <laughs> and you said that to me years ago, I'll never forget it. Uh, Timmy, sorry to cut you off. It's okay. I'll get over it. So, uh, look, we in some ways this reminds me of my grandfather, the dearly departed man who after lunch would have a drambuie. And it feels like the three of us are sitting around after a long lunch having a drambuie, thinking anybody gives a damn about question period. Look, yeah. Tom, Tom is right that, yeah, there were some good clips yesterday. But you know, this, this is such an inside Ottawa obsession about this making a big difference, what happens in question period and the not. I'll take Tom point that it can make a bit of a difference, but Pierre Polyev is not going to get elected or defeated by he how he and Justin Trudeau scrap it out in question period. So while it's a good talker, probably isn't going to make a damn bit of difference. Now I'm going to have the rest of that Drambuie. Well, now, do you put your Drambuie in a rusty nail? Like, what is your post-lunch recipe? Oh, then? no, if you're, listen, you got to drink Drambuie like Sherry. you got to drink it raw, Evan. I, that, that might put some hair on that uh, body of yours, but uh, that's wow. what you got to do. Just, I just want our listeners to know that Tim's knowledge intimate, of, of the here, how hirsute I am physically is something I didn't expect to expose like this, but we, we're, we're totally... Oh. <clears throat> anyway, um, and that's why, by the way, I, I just want to say, because the winters are cold here, I started heavily drinking Drambuie, uh, but now I've got to cut down because I look like a Sasquatch. Uh, let's go back to Zane and just get off this insane, insane topic. Uh the Liberals announced that they're planning to uh, finally lift the mandatory vaccines at the border. There are the random testing, and they're going to finally make the Arrive Can app, the beloved um, burr at the border, uh, optional. Uh, obviously, the timing on this is, is important. What do you make of that and, and, and their timing on it? Yeah, I mean, my, my main sort of comment is is high time. Let's see if the Americans kind of follow suit. I, I may not have followed news updates today if the Americans have commented on this or, or not, but that remains the, the big question. Uh, and I think it was getting tiresome for a while. And if I, if I can kind of maybe draw it and zoom it out to the broader political conversation about the Liberals, uh, it didn't surprise me that they were late on this, that they're a little slow on this. It kind of ties back to the general lethargic nature we've been talking about. Um, yeah. They can't bring that energy into the fall. So if this was the, the last residue of, of that um, sort of type of, of, of politics, um, if you're the liberals, you may kind of put it behind you. Yeah, people will chatter about it. But you've got to move forward with with a more strident energy that's going to be necessary with the new leader on the other side of the opposition. Yeah, and that's why they're going to be dividing up the, the three parts that they've promised to the NDP to keep the deal together, the dental, the housing, and the GST parts. They're going to be separate bills in the House. And they're basically going to be double dog daring the conservatives to vote against them. But lo and behold, today, the conservatives are already saying, well, you know what, dental care, that's health, that's provincial. We're not very enamored of this new program. So they're going to be, you know, staking out their own turf. Trudeau's going to try to have as many fights as he can. 
the conservatives will fight back with what we call opposition day emotions and oh trudeau voted against this now that becomes what tim was describing of the you know the inside the park baseball but i honestly think that question period is the one snap of the week where the average Canadian will sit up and say, well, that was sharp. You know, that was a sharp exchange. And I think that Poiliev will do quite good at it. It's not enough in and of itself. He's got to introduce himself otherwise. And that part of him, though, is something that will keep his base galvanized. Mm. And I think that's part of politics as well. But, I mean, on the reality show called Clip Hunters, that's what he's good at. He, he, he's yeah. good at the clip, mm. isn't he, Tim? Yeah, he's good at that, but but he's got some winning clips now. I mean, just back to the arrive can app and, and all these things being scrapped, he can say, look, I've been on the job for two weeks, and I've got the Liberals hopping. I am a threat. You see that. And, so, and, and he will. He's going to use this as a proof that his election is already bringing dividends to people and create the sense that, look, I can do – imagine if you elect me prime minister. These guys are acting because they're afraid of me. Let me act. So he's creating some opportunity already without even having that first uh, sword fight uh, with Justin Trudeau over that two-length sword distance in the House of Commons. So, yeah, it's uh, he, he's, he's gotten some little wins here that they also know what to do with. And I'll just quickly add on something Zane said. Pierre's also going to have to, uh, as we talked about the prime minister, restraining his worst instincts earlier, which he hasn't done too well uh, of late. Pierre's going to have to do the same thing. He just loves to go oh. in and humiliate people and crush him. And while his the conservative supporters might love a drubbing of Justin Trudeau, if Tom is right, and there are some people paying attention to those exchanges, they're not going to like mm. the utter humiliation that Pierre likes to delve out uh, on opponents. I got, I got a minute left, Tom. Tom I'm going to give it quickly to Tom. Uh, I got Eric Duham, the uh, conservative yeah. leader in Quebec, on just after the break, and I spoke to him yesterday. Uh, just set up, like, what is his kind of semi-surge, and it's, it's real, and Pierre say about the state of conservatism in your view? Well, it's resurgent. Uh, you know, there are people willing to hear that. He's a radio host. He's been at this for a long time. He knows the game, but he's worked in politics as a staffer. He's been around the hill in Ottawa. He knows Quebec City well, fluent in English, by the way. And he's quite an interesting character. He is scaring the bejesus out of Francois Legault in the entire Quebec City area, which is like 12 to 15 seats, depending on how you're counting it. And there are several ministers who are worried right now. His Consistent polling is in the 25% range. Legault is a little bit higher, you know, more in the 40% range. But this guy's going to be winning seats, and he yeah. really is scaring the pants off them. Well, he's he's coming up next. And by the way, uh, now we say it's scaring the Drambui out of you. Uh, Tim, <laughs> next time you can tell me the difference between Drambui and Gleva. I don't know if your granddad knew that. Oh, we're not. You never had Gleva, but I will. We'll, yeah, we can do that next time. Right. Well, the, the the Rat Pack loved a good Drambui, so my very own Sinatra, Martin, and Davis here, uh, Fantastic. The, the great rat pack of politics inside the worm. You guys are great. I really do appreciate it. Um, thank you for your wisdom as ever. And more importantly, for your friendship. Uh, you guys are fantastic. Uh, we will have uh, the conservative leader in Quebec. Now, why is that important? Because what does it say about a new conservatism across the land? Uh, Eric Duhem is on the other side of a break. Stay with us. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. Now more from the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
Election Day in Quebec is less than two weeks away. We do expect the incumbent Premier Legault to win, but one of the biggest stories, not just for Quebecers, but around the country, is a sudden surge in support for Quebec Conservative Party, uh, led by a man named Eric Duhaime, former radio shock jock. He's been in politics before. His party could probably, well, it's Poland, he'd come in at least in second place, um, tied for second place. Uh, look, he, no one, you probably don't know him if you don't live in Quebec. He openly opposed vaccine mandates. He doub- he's doubly vaxxed himself, but he didn't like some of the really strict mandates, vaccine mandates, like, of course, the uh, pandemic curfews in Quebec. But now he's got health care, inflation. Obviously, in Quebec, language laws are a big thing. Now, this is kind of interesting. He wants to repeal Legault's language law called Bill 96, which seeks to protect the French language by limiting the use of English in courts. But weirdly, he supports the other controversial three-year-old secularism law that prevents teachers, police, and judges from wearing religious symbols. So, like, what gives? And what does it say with Pierre Polyev's election and Duhaime's surge? Is there a new face of conservatism in Quebec and in Canada? Let's find out. Well, there's obviously a conservative movement. Uh, It's the rebirth of conservatism in Quebec. Uh, You know, when I decided to run for the leadership of of the party a little bit more than a year ago, the party had 500 members and it was at 1%. Currently, we're the largest political party in terms of membership with 60,000 members. uh, And we're almost at 20% in the poll, between 16 and 20% in the polls. And we keep going up. So, yes, we have the momentum. Uh, Yes, the the crisis... Has it been the COVID stuff? I know you were hammering about that, uh, but, you know, the COVID crisis has passed now. Now, Is it the immigration issue? Is it the inflation issue? What is it? It's it, well. It's it's all of that. It's the economy. It's the healthcare system. It's all you know. We uh, we had a government here in Quebec that under uh, François Legault that we thought was a little bit more on the center right. And unfortunately, Mr. Legault, as soon as he got elected, he became a Parti Québécois uh, again, like he was when he was a minister in that party. Uh, you know, he he didn't uh, give any. didn't bring any private into healthcare system. He didn't balance the budget. He actually did the worst deficit in Quebec's history. He didn't exploit our oil and gas like he promised during the election campaign. He actually even adopted a law to ban any kind of, of thing like that. He didn't downsize the state. He promised us that he would cut at least 5,000 But, but how do you do that? But, but remember, there was deficits and the state functioned because there was two years of a global pandemic where, where you saw in your own province in long-term care facilities, there was mass death there. I mean, do you think that was the time to cut the state? Well, well, even just as soon as he got elected, he started already to increase the expenses even before uh, COVID hit us. Uh, unfortunately, he, he obviously was flashing on, on the right, but he turned left as soon as he got elected. Uh, but that being said, even now, he's still campaigning with a center-left pro- 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 approach. And there's four parties in the National Assembly. The four parties were often very unanimous on all sorts of things, like public monopoly on health care, like uh, not exploiting our oil and gas, and like uh, running huge deficits. And so there, there's a lot of consensus among those four parties, and uh, we're quite different. And there's a lot more, more voters that appreciate that. So you would want, just on health care, just real quick, I, I, uh, just a rapid fire, you want more privatization of health care? Well, we want, we want to make sure that the private system can offer some competition. We want to add the contribution of the private sector. We want to do it under the Canada Health Act. We want to make sure that the insurance stays public. But uh, if the public system, the public monopoly is not able to deliver the services that you deserve because you pay huge, we pay a billion dollars a week here in Quebec, 
Well, if they can't provide you in a reasonable delay, then you can go to a private yeah, but, clinic but or a private happens, hospital but and just, get, the, get the service But for, Let's look at MRIs. Uh, I get, I understand that. In MRI, you know, you can get a private MRI in Quebec across the river in Ottawa, for example. You can't. But it costs. If, you, if you're a low-income Quebecer, you got to wait. And frankly, the Quebec government doesn't invest any much more in MRIs because that's basically been farmed out to the private system. Are you worried that low-income Quebecers are going to get the shaft? Well, we're not talking about the, we're talking about essential services here, um, and we're not ta we're talking generally speaking. We want to make sure that the you know the public insurance is going to stay. The public the government's going to keep paying. Our models are the Swedish model, the German model. We want to have hospitals that are competing and from the private sector that are mm -hmm. competing the public sector. We do believe that competition is good for the market. And we want to make sure that we can do much better with for less. And that's that's our plan right now. We've tried all sorts of reform with the public monopoly over the for the last 40 years in Quebec, and they've all delivered terrible results. It's worse than ever right now. Can can you square a circle for me? Because um, you have been on the record as being opposed to something called Bill 21, which of course for those people, uh, um, sorry, you're, you're opposed I'm to Bill 96. Bill 96, right. yeah. You're, you're opposed to Bill 96, which is the Quebec uh, French language law, which you know would force people to speak more, but you are not opposed to Bill 21, which is the secularization law, which bans, for example, police officers, teachers, and uh, judges, and, and, and government lawyers from wearing any uh, religious symbols. So uh, can you square the circle? How are you so concerned about minority rights for anglophones but you don't seem to be concerned with religious rights of minorities well we all have religious freedom and i think it's important to respect that that being said every citizen also has the right to be served neutrally by the state the, uh, so i think every citizen has a right to when there's somebody in authority that represents the state to have a service that is neutral and that's what bill 21 is all about and Bill 96 is something else. It's a, it's a political bill used by our Premier Legault to poke the English community to get a few Parti Québécois voters on his side on the eve but of an election. But isn't the other bill, some and, people say, you know, a lot of immigrants, a lot of Muslim Quebecers say that, that in fact 21 is an excuse to poke them. And you, studies have shown that uh, minority groups, but, religious minority groups, over the last three years have felt very well, targeted by it. Quebec has a very different approach, I think, than English Canada on uh, the, the state and religion. As you know, here in Quebec, the Catholic Church was very, very present. And in 1960, we went through a true separation between those two. Uh, and uh, a lot of Quebecers don't want to revisit mixing religion and the state. So you have to understand that it has nothing to do with the specific community. It also has to do with the past and the strong majority of Quebecers that what we've been through over the, the right. 50s and the 40s. Last question. Immigration has been a big issue in this. The, 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 the calc leader, Francois Legault, came under fire for his comments linking immigrants yeah. to violence and extremism. Uh, he then apologized, although he seems to be playing footsies with those comments. Um, he has an immigration target of 50,000 newcomers. There's a worker shortage in Quebec. You're saying you, you want it to be, I think, am I right, 35,000 immigrants? Why no, that's not? the Parti Québécois. The, the Parti okay, Québécois so are you, are you okay with the target of 50,000? Uh, uh, as I said, me for me, I'm not into the numbers because now they're all fighting on numbers. The, the important thing is that we have immigrants that are coming and make sure that they get a job and that a majority speak French. That's for me. That's the very important part of it. We want, we, we need immigrants. By the way, as you know, we have a shortage of manpower in Quebec. It's a huge problem in every single region I go. Everybody's talking about it, 
uh, it's really a real problem. And immigration is not the solution to everything to, to, for the, the, the shortage of manpower, but it is one of the solutions. And we need to make sure that the people that we're getting in are integrated linguistically and that they work. Because if they come here and they don't work, it's going to be a failure for both our society and for the immigrants uh, arriving here. So that's Eric Duhem. He's the leader of the Conservative Party of Quebec. Now, I think he did make a, a fair point. He said, look, you got to understand the context of many political issues in Quebec is different, dare I say, distinct from the rest of the country. I know that word is hyper-polarizing, but he's not wrong. I just don't understand this, and I, and I don't think you can square the circle. You're vigorously opposed to a law that would limit the use of of English language to promote French, but you're not vigorously opposed to a law that would limit religious minorities from wearing like a cross or a kippah or a hijab or a turban to be a police officer or a judge or a teacher. Teacher's been fired in Chelsea for this. Like, rights are rights. You really think the state should intrude on people's religious freedoms because you took a job? Can't do your job as a teacher? Oh, I, I see you're wearing a cross on your necklace. I see you're wearing a keep. I see you're wearing a hijab. You can't be my teacher. We got a teacher shortage. Seriously? Oh, kids, your teacher can't be here because of her religious garb. I just don't get that you can be opposed to one and support another. Anyway, let's talk to a 15-year-old teen who's suing the Ontario government next. That's right. 15-year-olds suing the government. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. what I was doing. I was thinking about the world, probably figuring out what music to like, trying to make sports teams, trying to figure out if I was too much of a nerd to get somebody to like me. But Sophia Mathur and seven other young people are saying, hey, there's a climate crisis out there. And we're going to sue the Ontario government over its climate policies. That's right. Seven young people brought a case against the Ontario government saying, you know what? Your climate plans aren't protecting us. And this case actually got heard in the Ontario Superior Court in Toronto. This is the first of its kind. And, and Sophia Mathur, a 15-year-old teen who's one of the seven, she's in Sudbury, uh, from Sudbury, is the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit and joins me now. Hi, Sophia. Did you get off school to do this interview? Well, I'm actually in school right now, but I'm uh, in the cafeteria to, to, to talk to you today. Good. Okay. I didn't want you to like skip class for this because that would just really reinforce how bad I am as an influence. Um, tell, tell us about this lawsuit and, and you and your, your six uh, uh, fellow plaintiffs. Yeah. So me and my six other fellow plaintiffs are suing the Ontario government because they haven't been taking enough action on the climate crisis. But along with that, they took away targets. They reduced targets that were already previously set 
to protect the climate. And, you know, this is our group is a group of uh, younger people who are who see the effects of climate change and are seeing what scientists are saying, uh, how climate change is going to affect us and are scared. And we're here to represent all youth around Ontario, but also youth around the world who are scared for their future and scared because their governments aren't taking enough action. I'm speaking to Sophia, you're 15. How did you get this? Where did the idea come from and how did you get the capacity to contact EcoJustice, who I know are acting for you in the courts? Yes, so it, it honestly went the other way around. EcoJustice has done previous cases like this, so they contacted the youth uh, I'm pretty sure they contacted me first, and it was way before we released the case. We released the case in 2019, but they contacted me in in, in 2018, basically telling me what they were what they were planning. Oh, to they do just like. And I why did they reach out to you, like out of the blue, or were you sort of a well-known activist in your school? Uh, well, I had I had already done things, and I was pretty active on social media and Twitter and things like that. And I had been doing uh, parachutes for the planet, Friday the Future strikes. So, uh, and I was an Ontarian doing this, so I think they saw what I was doing and they contacted uh, my mom through our email and then we had a, a meeting with the lawyers and they explained what was going to, to happen, basically. Okay, so eco-justice is, okay, we'd like to do this. What's the experience been like for you? You must have learned a lot about the law. Yeah, so I'd already been, you know, previously interested in, you know, going into law or something like that when I grow, you know, grow up. Uh, so, you know, being in this case is honestly very educational. I've learned a lot about a lot, but also what it's like to work with lawyers. You know, their schedules are very busy and things like that. But most of all, I found it really interesting to see the Ontario government's arguments and, you know, the excuses they make in, in court. And honestly, just listening to the hearing, you know, even though it's really long, is really interesting to hear all the points made and mm. all the. You want to be a lawyer now, don't you? <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean it, to make a difference. Is that something that you're interested in? Yes, I mean, uh, I'm hoping that in the future I won't have to do, uh, you know, these these cases still, uh, considering the fact that, you know, I, do, I don't want climate change to still have to be an issue that we still have to solve then. But, um, but yeah, I am interested in law, and I think the lawyers at EcoJustice really inspired me. One of the things, Sophia, and, I, and I'm not trying to debate you on this, but it intrigues me by this case, and I'd certainly intrigues me about the eco-justice case. This is a policy issue that, that governments are elected to have policies. This government was elected and they said we want to get rid of the cap and trade system in, in, uh, when it comes to carbon or other issues. These are policy issues that the courts should not and have not, frankly, in the past too often tread on what have been policy issues that you may not like this government, but instead of suing them and having the courts uh, be able to enforce policy, just run and get another party elected. That's how the system works. What do you, what do you say to the notion that people are saying this is, this is a, a, a democracy issue, it shouldn't be in, enforced by unelected judges? Well, yes, when you, when you see it from that perspective, it's different. But also, when you think about the fact that the policies that they're making or the policies that they're getting rid of, are going to have a serious impact on people's lives. It's, it's not just the economy we're talking about. We're talking about solving a crisis that can have a, the impact of, of all of Ontario, everyone here, and future generations. So, yes, I, you know, I'm not well, a lawyer. How do you prove I that? Go... Just, just, I know you're not a lawyer, and I, I just think this is fascinating. And again, I know you're 15, so I'm not... I, I'm just trying to flesh this out. The, I know your lawyers are arguing that 
this violates your young people's Section 7 and 15 rights, right? The right to life, liberty, and security and equality without discrimination. In other words, that this disproportionately impacts you and your, your rights to live in a safe environment are being violated. Uh, is the, that's the, but the, the proof that these policies are directly in, uh, part of that is tricky to make, isn't it? Yes, I guess I would say that. But yeah, I mean, we have scientists backing us up on our team and people basically uh, proving that, you know, they, they can't just reduce these targets and not do anything. Uh, but yeah. So how long do you expect this to go for? Uh, well, you know, since the hearing's over, we don't know how long it will take for the judge to rule. It could take months or, or even a year for us to get a response. What has been the response of other friends? Like, you've got six plaintiffs. You guys are taking on the provincial government. Like, what has your friends saying about this? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, honestly really uh, interesting. You know, it's happened around the world, like in Canada and in, and in the U.S. Uh, so we're, we're following them. You know, our case is uh, different, obviously, but I think everyone's really empowered. And no matter if we win or lose, I think that Ontarians are watching this and they're realizing that the current government mm-hmm. isn't doing enough. I got to tell you, um, you know, win or lose, it doesn't, you know, I'm not a lawyer either, so I'm not, I, I can't weigh in the merits of the case. I'm intrigued by it. But I love that you, you and your, and your six uh, fellow plaintiffs, I don't know if they're friends of yours, Sophia, but they're doing this. You're engaged. I've always said we should lower the voting age because I think the issues affect young people. And I love how politically active you are. Please keep at it. We'll see where this court case goes. But um, your dedication to an idea and your, your ability to organize absolutely inspirational, Sophia. And the fact that you're doing this in the cafeteria and still going back to school is doubly impressive. So I hope to have many conversations and congratulations on on really getting engaged in your world. It matters. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was great speaking with you. Thank you for inviting me. Come on anytime. By the way, you could have my job. You're better spoken than I am. Sophia Mathorf. I can't believe you're 15. From She's from Sudbury. What a star. Like, it doesn't matter if you believe that she's right in the case. How cool is it to be 15 and to be taking on that kind of ambition? Okay, before I go, uh, I said I'd give a shout-out to Samantha Pope today. At the beginning of the show, we had breaking news about Donald Trump and this, the Attorney General of New York bringing fraud case. We had about 45 seconds to get the clips. Then we had about three minutes to get a guest. Samantha got a guest, which you heard, a former prosecutor. She did it in about... 95 seconds. That is a special forces level work ethic. Thank you, Samantha.